DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. I want to get right to it. Um, the Herschel Walker abortion story continues to be a dominant theme in uh, political news with just a little over a month, a month from tomorrow, Election Day, and early voting, which starts one week from today. It's a theme that has overshadowed an awful lot of other news in uh, the campaigns here in Georgia. And, of course, it's attracted an enormous amount of national attention as well. Uh, Late last week, New York Times reporter Maya King broke new ground in this story. Uh, She becomes the second reporter, after the Daily Beast first broke the news, to talk to the woman who said to the Daily Beast she'd had an abortion that Walker had asked her to get and paid for, In talking to Maya King, uh, the woman revealed she'd had a second abortion and told her more about Herschel Walker's relationship to the child that she bore, refusing his request to have the second abortion. And Maya's going to join us in just a second. I want to just introduce the rest of the panel uh, very quickly. Um, We uh, are joined by a great group of political scientists. We've got Audrey Haynes, professor of political science at the University of Georgia. Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University. Adrian Jones, professor of political science and director of pre-law at Morehouse College. And of course, it's Monday, which means that political reporter and columnist Patricia Murphy, who writes um, The Jolt every day in the, at AJC.com. And of course, you read her column in the Wednesday and Sunday editions of the newspaper, um, Political Insider. Um, Patricia, we're going to talk to Maya for the first few minutes of the show, and I'd like you to help me frame this as we turn to her. One of the things that I think is so important about Maya King is having an interview with this woman who continues to want to be anonymous is that up until um, this story broke on Friday, uh, the woman had only talked to one news organization. We had no reason to doubt the credibility of her story. But Maya King, by getting an opportunity to talk to her, really expands our sense of the um, factual basis for all of this, in addition to adding details about Herschel Walker and his relationship to this child that she bore by him. Right, Patricia? Yes. I mean, it's an incredible piece of reporting um, by Maya, um, but it is just, it feels like a bomb has gone off in this this campaign um, because... So much of what Herschel Walker has been talking about up to this point, if you go to his events, he talks so much about um, his family. He tells the audience that they are his family and he wants to protect them just as he would protect his own family. And um, Maya's reporting really reveals um, how he's treating some members of his own actual family, including um, one of his children, who we didn't know about before this campaign. Um, I think it raises so many issues about um, Herschel Walker's credibility. First of all, he said that he had had no idea where this was coming from. He had no idea who this woman was. Obviously, um, he knows 
uh, this woman very, very well, was in a two-year relationship with her. Um, I think it uh, raises a lot of questions about the competence of the operation that he's running. His response so far has been um, uh, uh, all over the place. It has been uh, full of denials, accusations, um, obfuscations, and uh, it, it, I think it just really resets the table. It also shows us what Republicans are willing to do to hold on to this, to this seat. With all that, with all that, Maya, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know that um, you have to move on, so we only have the top of the show with you, but I'm very grateful to you to, for joining us. Um, describe what the woman, we, we know from your reporting now that there was a, that Walker wanted her to have a second abortion. She refused. She went ahead and gave birth to the child. Um, let's talk first about um, how openly the woman talked to you about the second abortion. Was she, has she gotten to the point where she's just very willing when someone like you is able to talk to her to be open about this, or does she still feel as if she's got to be somewhat constrained? Well, what I'll say is that she was real, she spoke with us in rather frank terms about her relationship with Herschel Walker, and we did our best to make her comfortable enough to do so because we really had to nail down the details of this story to make sure that it was clear enough to, to say that, indeed, Daily Beast reporting was 100% accurate and that we could, you know, corroborate it and push it forward. One thing that she shared with us a number of times, though, was the fact that she was talking now because she was frustrated by the hypocrisy that she was seeing Herschel Walker um, display. She knew that the first time that she had an abortion, when they had the conversation, she told us he never expressed any moral or religious misgivings about having abortion. Um, and then on the campaign trail, of course, has said, you know, I believe in life and has essentially endorsed a nationwide abortion ban with no exceptions for health of the mother. Um, this woman saw that also saw how well he was doing relative to Senator Warnock in the polls. She is a registered Democrat. And she said, you know, that I have political and personal reasons for coming forward at this point. And just felt like, one, the lies and the hypocrisy were too much for her to bear. But two, the thought of him actually being in the United States Senate as someone who was so staunchly um, against the procedure of having an abortion was, was frankly, in her mind, a little bit dangerous. Um, for so many women, she told us, you know, I'm, she was glad to have had that choice, and she hopes that other people will be able to have it, too. We know, of course, from the first reporting in the Daily Beast that she agreed to have an abortion that Walker paid for. She alleges he's denied it uh, 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 time and time again at this point. But again, your reporting is the first time we learned that she was pregnant again by him, I think a couple years after the first uh, a pregnancy. Uh, at, at that point, she refused Walker uh, when he said you should get an abortion again. She gave birth to the child, who I believe is what, about 10 years old now? And yes. she talked to you about the lack of relationship between Walker and this 10-year-old child who he fathered. Tell us about that. Yes, the child is about 10 years old now, and that was part of the reason why she wanted to conceal her identity was to um, to protect him from a lot of the drama of this, honestly. Because one thing that she shared with us is that her child does not have a relationship, really, with, with his father. And so it would be rather traumatic for him to finally learn of all of this and see, you know, be able to make the connections here 
between how big this story has gotten and the fact that he and his mother are a huge, huge part of that story, which would only further the point, though, that he has not really heard from his father in the midst of this. And she really wanted to protect him from the hurt that could ensue from that. Um, you know, she shared with us also that Herschel Walker's wife is really the person who maintains the relationship and upholds a lot of the um, logistics, essentially. So making sure that child support payments are delivered on time, that Christmas and birthday presents are there, um, that as, as her son grows, that she, she tells Herschel Walker's wife actually what her child's shoe size and clothing sizes are, not Herschel himself. He, she is really the one who handles a lot of this, um, which is just yet another example, though, of um, how sterile the relationship is between Herschel Walker and, and his children and the mother of his child. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a political story, obviously, but it's also a very sad personal story um, when you really yeah. think about. Patricia, do you want to jump in? Um, yeah, Maya, what else did she have to say? Was there anything that didn't make it into the story? Um, I'm so interested in, uh, do we know anything else about her or about their relationship? Well, she was careful not to share a lot of personal details with us again, because she really wanted to make sure that the story was more about Herschel's hypocrisy and how her experience with him relates to that. Um, all of the things that we reported in the story, we corroborated against uh, court proceedings, documents that she shared with us, and other public documents that we were able to find through a, a very, very extensive research team that just did outstanding work to push this story out as soon as we had the interview. Um, you know, I think one of the bigger questions that I have now from my reporting as it relates to sort of more personal details is, um, you know, if this is the same story for Herschel's other children, right? We know that from the Daily Beast reporting over the summer, there are at least two that we, we know about Christian Walker, but that there are also two other children, one older daughter and a, um, a preteen aged son. You know, is this the experience that they have as well with Herschel? Is this the experience that their mothers have too? Um, and, you know, were they also asked to, to consider not keeping their, their children? Um, you know, these are all the things that we're hoping to uncover. Uh, but, you know, it's also that line between making sure that you have a strong political story and then wading into the more tabloidy aspects of this, because we're also talking about people's lives. And that's one thing that, that we've had to be really mindful of in all of this, too, especially in verifying the facts of this particular case. Maya, I think what you just said is really important. I mean, this clearly is, at this point, um, an important political story, particularly because of Washer, Walker's strong stance against abortions of any sort for any reason. Um, but as you say, when I read your accounting, uh, there's you quote the mother as saying, as a father, he's done nothing. He does exactly what the courts say, and that's all. That's it. Um and then she goes on and said, he's got to be held responsible, just like the rest of us. If you're going to run for office, you need to own your own life. But, but the first part of that quote does tell us, this is a very sad personal story. In the same way that Christian Walker's outburst against his father um, tells us a very sad story about his relationship with his father. Um, so I, I appreciate the fact you talk about the balance between covering the news and understanding the the sort of tragic nature of some of this. Yeah, and, um, you know, heading into what is one of the most important weeks for, for Herschel Walker as we're on the heels of a debate, 
he has a lot on his mind, obviously, politically and personally. And um, Patricia, I'm sure you can attest talking to Republican operatives about about Christian. They are not very quick to want to weigh in on some of this. And I think it's one because Christian is the one person who has actually verified a lot of these claims himself. But two, because it's kind of a universal rule in politics. You don't really like to, people don't really like to weigh in or or go too hard on on the children of the people who are running for office. And um, I think that's what we're seeing now, too. But it's just the, the evidence is clearly mounting. Um, there's a, there's Im- impending implosion on the side of the campaign. And we'll just have to see how all of these more personal, you know, uh, details could impact um, a very what was once, I mean, a, a really forward Senate campaign. Maya King, I want to stick to our commitment that we would uh, ask you to join us for the top of the show. So so I'm very grateful, as I said, for you doing that. Again, I know you've got to move on, but uh, thank you for your reporting on this with your team. You've obviously uh, shared a byline on the story, but you did talk to the woman yourself. And we're grateful for your being here. We look forward to you, uh, as you've done in the past, coming back and being a panelist uh, on Political Rewind as the election cycle moves forward. Thanks a lot, Maya. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, as always, for having me. Bye-bye. Um, so, Patricia, let's pick up on this interesting uh, aspect of the story, which we learned from NBC News, actually. Um, you know, Maya talked about the fact that it was Herschel Walker's wife, Julie, who maintained a relationship with the mother of his 10-year-old son. Um, uh, and and the NBC News uncovered... Well, they didn't uncover them. The Walker campaign gave them texts between Julie Walker and this woman, which made it clear that the two of them have had a pretty long-standing relationship, which I think adds to the complexity and, and frankly, mystifies me a little bit in terms of how Herschel now says, well, I knew nothing about any of this. Well, the fact that he says he knew nothing about any of this is extremely uh, bizarre and, frankly, impossible to believe. Um, But the Walker campaign shared those texts with NBC News in their effort to prove that he didn't know anything about this abortion, because there's a text from uh, the woman to uh, Julie Walker and says, did you know that he also asked me to have an abortion? And Julie Walker's response was, this makes me incredibly sad. Um, So uh, in those text exchange, the Walker campaign wanted to show that at least Julie Walker didn't know about it. There's no, there's nothing to say that Herschel Walker didn't know about it. And of course, with the receipt and with the get well card, um, the New York Times uh, in particular is obviously very confident that he certainly did know about it and did pay for it. Um, but I think something that Maya said also is so important um, that this is the week of Herschel Walker's only debate with Raphael Warnock. He has two U.S. senators coming in tomorrow to vouch for him and stump for him. Uh, Early voting starts one week from today. This is just a pivotal, crucial, high-intensity time of this campaign, no matter what else is going on. And for his campaign to be, like, not just distracted, but totally consumed by the story, which is sort of half, as you said, half personal tragedy, half tabloid fodder, but half political drama, um, this is not at all the way you want to be going into a campaign where you need your candidate prepped, ready, confident, and um, able to go up against Raphael Warnock in a debate. 
Yeah, you know what? I'd love to get everybody else to weigh in just on what we're hearing today. Um, Audrey, we'll start with, why don't we start with you, Audrey, Adrian, and, and Amy. Why don't you each just give us a little bit of your feelings about what we're hearing, what we learned from Maya's story, what we've learned from these texts. So I'll just open the floor to you right now. Audrey? Just Unmute, Audrey. I did. I did. I got it. Finally. Um, just a quick added bit of information. So the text that was provided to um, NBC News, if you go and look at it online, it, it basically ends. Um, and, and just a little bit about the content. You know, if Herschel is denying that he knew this individual, the, the text itself says, I witness every day Herschel pray for you. And, and they blank the name of the child. Everyone in your family, I've seen him call and text regularly to have a relationship with the child. So obviously, if he doesn't know who this person is, how can he be praying for them and talking about them? The thing um, that's interesting is that they also sent a text that cuts off at the end where um, Julia Walker says, uh, God is a good God. I love you both. If you look at the Daily Beast, they actually have the full text. And at the end of that full text, the mother of that child basically says, are you kidding me? Stop it. Stop lying to Julia. So obviously there is a question about the sincerity, accuracy, or whether this was um, shared at a time. If you look at the, the time that it was shared, was this part of the effort to control the message or to create a new narrative as opposed to some sincerity? Adrian and then Amy? I guess it seems to me that on something like this, it might make more sense just to admit the failure. Um, you know, abortion was available during this period of time legally. Um, you know, whether he agreed with it or not, perhaps it was not a good time to have uh, a child. And that was um, a route that they could take. Um, and I see him now trying to flip the script, right, saying, you know, they're desperate to go after my family. Um, I have no sense that folks have wanted to go after Herschel Walker's family. At one point he said, you know, um, why would I bring my children into these garbage gutter politics? And this situation makes me feel like he is the one who is engaged in garbage gutter politics. Um, and this, this is simply evidence uh, of that. At the same time, I do not know that this hurts his campaign, regardless of the debate being on Friday and the election being so close. Amy? So I think what could be interesting here is that in many ways, right, Herschel Walker is running on, on some level, his sort of personal reputation, right? He, he's not coming in, obviously, as a policy wonk. He's not coming in as someone who is saying, okay, I've had this career, which makes me sort of naturally suited, right? Instead, he's kind of coming in to some degree on this personal story. And I think that makes it more difficult uh, in many ways and why there's this focus, because that's kind of all there is, is this sort of personal story. And so now other sides of it are coming out, right? Especially with the topic. So even um, beyond the abortion, the one that makes it difficult is that he's one of the big things that he's talked about a lot through the years, even prior to running, is about being right, particularly black absentee fathers, um, which makes it sort of doubly, triply, quadruply uh, problematic when it turns out that he has multiple children. 
uh, who he sort of has not disclosed, that he doesn't seem to have a relationship with. Um, that's sort of where, right, these, again, the more extended text messages are sort of heartbreaking of the child saying, you know, do you know what my favorite color is or how old I am? Um, and there's no response, actually. But I think the flip side of it is sort of as Adrian intimated that at the end of the day, is it going to actually matter? Not necessarily, right? We are in a time of heightened partisan polarization. Um, we have seen bright people making, uh, I think, what was the quote that um, I wouldn't care if he aborted endangered baby eagles. He's a Republican and I want to win the Senate. Um, and right, studies in political science have shown that we've sort of shifted uh, in our sort of thinking about what it means to be a member of a political party from sort of an idea that, well, they best represent sort of my policy positions and values to sort of a team sports battle. And the concern there is that when you play another team on the gridiron or on the pitch or something like that, there is no compromise. You want to win. Right. You don't try to meet halfway. You don't try to see, OK, how can we work this out? You want to win and you want to destroy the other side. And if we now see politics as that sort of battle, it makes it even that much more difficult. And it also means that you kind of don't care. Right. You don't care what kind of dirty tactics your side uses if they win. All right. Um, thank you for all of you for uh, giving us your first thoughts on, on this story. Um let, let's move into this whole conversation that Adrian and Amy, you really uh, started this off on already, which is, is this going to have any impact on the election itself? And Patricia, um, I, I, I want to turn to the fact that over the weekend, uh, we had a number of Republican uh, uh, members of Congress, a number of Republican leaders who uh, said they're still supportive of Herschel Walker, um, Congressman Don Bacon, of Nebraska. He's running for re-election. He was on Meet the Press yesterday. Um, he said, quote, Herschel needs to come clean and just be honest. We also know that we all make mistakes. It's just better if this actually did happen. Say, I'm sorry and ask for forgiveness. But this is ultimately going to come down to positions. Bacon says he supports Walker because of where he stands on the issues. Um, so I think that applies to, and you, you've had reporting in the AJC, talking to Republican voters who say they're sticking with Walker. Uh, either this isn't of concern to them, they don't believe it, whatever. So let's all talk about this. Is this, in fact, going to change the course of the Senate race? So I think that it feels like it has frozen the Senate race in that um, Herschel Walker was not done consolidating the Republican vote when this happened, he still had a small but important number of Republicans voting for either Raphael Warnock, uh, Chase Oliver, who's a libertarian, or just saying they're not going to vote at all in that race. These are temp voters um, who are just not there yet with Herschel Walker based solely on his confidence and his ability to do the job. And so with all of this happening, it feels to me like it has it has frozen his momentum and blacked out any chance for him to bring those those voters over, and it may have certainly solidified where they were in the first place. Um, I think if this goes to a runoff, though, it's just an entirely different conversation when it comes down to whether or not this might be um, 
all about control of the U.S. Senate, all about the future of mm. President Joe Biden's administration. This is the easiest race on the ticket to nationalize, um, despite how incredibly personal it has become. And so um, if Republicans can just keep Warnock below 50 percent, and he has never polled at 50 percent in any, any previous polling, if they can keep him there and then make it a one-on-one contest between Walker and Warnock, I think that really resets the race. Adrian? I have to agree with the runoff analysis. Um, as far as I'm concerned, we've seen problems with Herschel Walker's campaign throughout in terms of his personal life and things that he does or does not do. The bottom line is he's charismatic. Um, he has fantastic roots here in Georgia where people admire and love him. And he has done his job by staying extremely close to Warnock, um, he, Warnock not being over 50%, right? So it really doesn't matter. <laughs> um, Herschel Walker is getting this job done. And the bottom line is when the rubber hits the road, it's going to be about the balance of power in the Senate. Um, this could easily be sort of, you know, pushed away with, for a focus on, you know, are we going to control the Senate or not? And, um, you know, voters who care about the GOP are going to vote for Herschel Walker, even if it feels like a conflict for them. Um, I'm I'm sort of not seeing anything that uh, could tank him completely out of this race. We're, you know, several weeks to go. And this is just the latest in uh, controversial information about Mr. Walker. Well, yeah, but fine, but but Amy, we're going to have to get to a break in a minute. But I, I get that you know the the expression that keeps being used over and over as this conversation has unfolded locally and on the national level is the Walker vote is baked in. Sure, we know that there's a base out there that's going to vote Republican no matter what. But aren't we talking repeat? Haven't we talked repeatedly about the importance of uh, suburban women, particularly uh, voters, and whether they will be enough to tip the balance one way or the other? I mean, there are voters out there who I don't think are um, have made up their minds completely yet, and this could be an issue that makes a difference, especially again to uh, women. Uh, out there in suburban Georgia. Yes. So all of it's true. I mean, so we've got a couple of things, right? For the party base, likely none of this matters whatsoever, right? Because they're committed to the party and they're not really going to swerve from that. Second, though, you have those who may, so you've got the group that you know, sort of might say that they're an independent or that they lean Republican, but they're not really as committed to the party. And so for them, it is more of a searching. Maybe they're also questioning it. Right. So one thing that we do know is that in Georgia back in 2020 is that there were quite a number, for example, in the first right set right in in November 2020 of Biden Purdue voters. Right. So people who right probably were Republican, but were not comfortable voting for Trump. Right. That he was sort of a bridge too far and they were willing to express that. But then they didn't. But then they voted for Purdue. Now, in the runoff, what appeared to happen is a lot of those voters simply didn't turn out. Right. They couldn't bring themselves to vote for Purdue and Leffler, particularly as they sort of became closer to Trump. And so part of what we have here is, again, this question of what happens to that group that you're sort of targeting? Do they turn out and say, OK, I support 
Kemp because, of course, he's got strong and we're not sort of seeing like and we know that they're sort of uh, again, the polls seem to suggest there's Kemp Warnock voters. Right. So do they turn mm-hmm. out for Kemp and vote for Warnock? Do they vote out for the turnout for Kemp, hold their nose and vote for Walker or do they not turn out? at all. And so that's the other side of this is what uh-huh. is going to happen as we're trying to get turnout uh-huh. as we're uh going through this and um expanding that of is this going to complicate particularly turnout in some of those areas uh particularly those sort of suburban, you know, kind of the the counties that are changing in Metro Atlanta. Okay, so part of this may be, uh, Patricia, as we go to break, that the baked-in nature of this is not just baked-in votes for Walker, but that there may, in fact, be those swing voters out there who have already made their decision because we've seen the Warnock-Kemp poll numbers, which suggest there are plenty of people baked in on voting for both of them, right? Yes. So keep an eye on Governor Brian Kemp throughout this. Um, We have asked him multiple times over the last week, um, are you going to be campaigning with Herschel Walker? Will you commit to uh, getting out with Walker? And he has never done that. He has said at this point, I'm going to be um, campaigning, uh, focusing on my own campaign. I'm going to be working to strengthen the entire ticket. I'm going to work on turnout, and that will be good for everybody running. Um, Brian Kemp knows this state, and he knows his voters, and I think he knows him better knows them better than uh, Rick Scott and Tom Cotton, who are coming to town uh, to stump for Herschel Walker. So I think Brian Kemp is the is the lead to watch on this as we go forward. All right, let's do this. Let's get the first break of the show out of the way and come back with a lot more on today's political rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Patricia Murphy, Amy Steigerwald, Adrian Jones, and Audrey Haynes join me for today's Political Rewind. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, Patricia, we are now, if you count our starting at the end of the NPR news break, we are now a half an hour into the content of Political Rewind. And all we've talked about is Herschel Walker and maybe a tiny bit about Raphael Warnock. And I think it's appropriate in many ways because it's a huge story. But it really does speak to how this story is overshadowing, it strikes me, every other aspect of the campaigns up and down the ticket. So let's talk about that for a couple of minutes. What is, Patricia, what does it mean to Stacey Abrams, who the polls suggest is fighting uh, to catch up to Brian Kemp, if this story is so dominant that it's harder for her to get her message across? Yeah, so it's it doesn't help at all. I mean, as as you know, um, as many efforts as she has been making to generate um, positive publicity and to get out her vote and to share her message, um, all of the national attention that really would have been focused on this rematch between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams really has been sucked up by Herschel Walker. I mean, there are only so many reporters that a national news outlet is going to send down <laughs> to Georgia to cover politics. And they are just 
totally focused on Herschel Walker. Um, there is just there's also just there's only so many minutes that a voter can focus on this, that a TV station can allow for political coverage. Um, and then it uh, it's also something that she will inevitably get asked about at every event that she has. And so no other candidate wants to be talking about Herschel Walker. And we have seen Stacey Abrams uh, really distance herself from Herschel Walker in any discussion of him. Um, Raphael Warnock has done the same. Democrats really don't want to get anywhere near this. Um, frankly, because they feel like Herschel Walker is doing a good enough job to <laughs> to get himself into trouble and keep himself there. Um, but it does make it harder for Abrams to um, really get the lion's share of the attention, which she needs at this point because she um, has been trailing in the polls, is looking to generate a lot more voter enthusiasm. Um, and there, there was a ton of enthusiasm out at the Pride Parade this weekend. Um, it's not that there's mm-hmm. no enthusiasm, but she needs to reach more than the dedicated Democrats. She needs to reach the average bears. She needs to reach those suburban moms who are too busy to go down to um, to the Pride Parade. Uh, she needs to be getting her message out past the people who are already deeply engaged. And that's why it makes it harder for her right now. Audrey? So maybe I'll reframe it just a little bit differently because it's always, to, you know, think about these things um, outside of traditional ways because we have new media and everything. So a lot of people have been talking about how there's so much noise and so much discussion on Herschel. It's like, you know, it is the thing people like to talk about because it's so it's so crazy. And um, but, you know, Stacey Abrams really needs to. You know, she's been targeting people. A lot of times it feels like she's almost not reaching everybody. But if you look at all of the social media that's out there, there's been a lot of targeting. And if she can increase numbers and mobilization of people that do support her but have maybe a history of not turning out at high degrees, and we may not be capturing that. We may not be capturing that in polls. We may not be capturing that because it's not on the news, which is dominated by Herschel Walker. So there's a lot of stealth ground game that can be going on. There, there is this notion of a little bit of this kind of malaise, but um, things are about to really start kind of um, hyping up because there's a lot of ads that are going to be dropping. This question, this this attention on Herschel, you know, may have some benefits and that there's there's less negative attention on Stacey Abrams as well, because she had been getting some negative stories. She'd had a pretty tough week uh, not too long ago um, with some of the outcomes. So, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure that it will help her or hurt her. But I have the feeling that her campaign is going to adjust and try and make uh, lemonade out of Herschel's lemons. Adrian. I guess I feel like the discussion about Stacey consistently um, focuses on her challenges and assumes that she's not reaching um, the voters that she needs to reach. And uh, to Audrey's point, it's not clear. Um, I feel like folks are ready to get onto the postmortem for Stacey, perhaps because she's black and the first woman, black woman to be nominated by a major uh, party to run for governor. Uh, the history of the state is one in which a female black governor is not even contemplated. Um, I think if she were a white man, that her that our discussion of Stacey, including here on Political Rewind, would be more balanced and not as focused on, uh, you know, how she potentially might fail in an election that we have not encountered yet. Uh, she ran against Kemp in 2018. The race was extremely close. 
And, um, you know, she's behind right now. I think it's worth talking about. But I also think that there should be some balance with regard to <clears throat> how we think about and talk about Stacey. We should not assume that Abrams is going to lose just uh, out of hand. Well, I do want to um, and, and I, I, I want to get you into the picture here, Amy, but I do want to defend the conversations we've had about Stacey Abrams on Political Rewind. I have certainly said over and over again that she is one of the savviest politicians that we could ever want to cover and that it would be absurd to count her out in this race, particularly because we're going to watch how her ground game uh, is empowered uh, to get out to the polls. So I do I do want to be careful that that um, uh, I say to listeners, we have we have never said we think that Stacey Abrams doesn't have a chance at winning this race. And Amy, let me play a soundbite for you since we're talking about her energizing her voters. Um, she was on Fox News Sunday yesterday going into hostile territory, which I thought was, you know, a smart move and also a slightly cor- courageous one since Fox News Sunday isn't what it was when Chris Wallace was hosting the show. And she was asked about um, the uh, sense that polling has showed that she is struggling uh, more than she did in 2018 with winning over the black vote. Let's listen to uh, her answer to that. I think it's a manufactured crisis designed to suppress turnout. I'm excited about the turnout we're seeing. I'm excited about the engagement that we're seeing. I know, however, that in every election cycle, there has to be some worry. And in this case, it is a worry that's being manufactured. But it is always an opportunity to engage. I do not take any voting block for granted. I may be African-American, but I'm not entitled to a single vote that I don't earn. So, uh, Amy, uh, really, Stacey Abrams, at the beginning of that, calling it a manufactured uh, issue, is really speaking to what uh, uh, we just heard Adrian say, which is that, um, maybe we're hyping the fact that the polls show black votes have not moved in her direction as strongly as they need to. But respond to what you heard her say there. Um, I think it's bringing out this sort of excellent point that part of the problem is that we have continued to see, unfortunately, a disconnect between sort of polling and election outcomes, particularly in about the last six years. Um, well, actually, really even back to, yeah, biggest six years, you know, back to 2016. Um, is that six years? Yes. Um, and so part of what is going on here is also that with in, in all of these entities, and sometimes it's gone more towards conservative side, sometimes it's gone more towards the liberal side uh, or the Democrats versus Republicans, is that candidates are increasingly trying to bring into the mix, as they should, um, especially as a political scientist, right, voters who have not previously been a part of the process and register new people, convince them that they want to be a part of this, they want to speak up. And the problem is, is that polls generally don't capture that. And it particularly becomes difficult when we turn to uh, polls trying to focus on likely voters, because one of the things that makes you more likely to be counted as a likely voter is that you have a history of previously voting. And so if you are a brand new entry into it, also if you are perhaps younger and don't have a landline, I mean, we've moved towards cell phone, but that also becomes difficult because people don't a lot of times answer calls that come from online voting or online surveys are notoriously skewed as well. And so we've got sort of these guest next that 
technology has changed. We do have these expanding electorates. It's difficult to decide where they're going to come in. And so a lot of it is trying to figure out what's going on. So on the one hand, the polls do, in fact, show currently that Kemp has continued to have a lead. On the other side, right, we see sort of it depends on where you are in the state and what are the events. So we have very good turnout, right, for different events. I know Patricia covered one the other day that Kemp was at. Um, but at the same time, we also, um, if you went to Pride this weekend, you only saw uh, things for the Democratic candidates. There were no Republican candidates who came to it and who participated. And so, again, who is being targeted and are they going to turn out? Yes, I think that is such an important point. And it's, an, it's a point that Stacey Abrams makes as well. She says that um, polling is a snapshot, but what are you taking a picture of? The entire Abrams campaign, the entire theory behind her candidacy is that she will bring out unlikely voters. She will bring out uh, the younger voters, the people who are new to Georgia, the people who are not getting picked up in polling. They feel very, very confident that um, both in their um, ground game and also in their focus groups that they are getting responses from people who are not your typical Democratic voters, but that who do align with Stacey Abrams on the issue. And I will say that um, the one issue that is not showing up in our polling, but I do not understand why, and I'm not a political scientist, so I'll have to throw this to the group. Um, abortion is not coming up as a primary motivational um, kind of factor for vote, for Georgia voters in our polling. And I, to me, that is so hard to believe because because we're at this unusual and historic sort of inflection point for the issue of abortion after Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And it's just not popping up. It's not lifting the, the Democratic candidates who are out there running on abortion and um, talking about their commitment to protect abortion rights. Um, and we know that the Georgia abortion law was unpopular, um, but it does not seem to be having a corollary effect on the on sort of where candidates are in the polling. Um, so I, I still continue to believe that's going to play a major role in this election, even though it's not showing up as a um, as a, as a major motivating factor in our polling. And it's certainly not showing up as, in the candidates who are leading in polls right now. Uh, Audrey, um, I do have to get to a break, but I'd love to get at least a first take on this because I understand Patricia's right. It's not showing up in the polling, but I, it doesn't mean it's not going to be something that, that people think about when they go in and cast their ballot. It's a somewhat, there, there's where the rubber meets the road. It's not in what you tell a pollster. Well, I was speaking with a campaign manager the other day about this phenomenon. It was a female campaign manager for a female candidate. And, you know, that question came up and we talked about, you know, basically the difficulty of talking about abortion and the the uncomfortable level that a lot of people uh, feel when talking about it. They tend to avoid it. So, you know, my, my theory is that we'll have a lot of people going in, both men and women, into the into the polling booth and maybe they'll be making a decision then. And it may be a question of you know, the economy and how strongly they feel about the salience of that issue versus something like abortion. It's, we're in a really complex, dynamic campaign right now, and things are changing daily. Every day we're getting news about gas prices, about the war, um, and, and, I mean, there's so much going on. I think it's really hard for people to settle. This is not a campaign that is going to be based on one issue, but I do want to mention, you know, um, if the Dobbs decision had not come out when it did, you know, 
I'm not sure that we would have these like dynamic issues. Look at how it affected the Walker campaign. Look at how it's having an impact on, you know, Republicans and Democrats. So, you know, it's really interesting. And I think we just have to keep watching to see what's going to happen. Campaigns will matter. All right. Um, Audrey Haynes gets the last uh, word on this segment of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. We know that Republicans are making a lot of the issue about the issue of crime as a motivating factor in getting their voters out to the polls. Um, and I want to talk about that for uh, uh, just a couple of minutes, um, because Tommy Tuberville, senator from Alabama, was at a rally with Donald Trump uh, over the weekend uh, in Nevada, and Nevada, and um, he made some comments that made national news, and that I think really I need to ask this panel about in terms of what it says when a U.S. senator says the following. Let's listen. Some people say, well, they're soft on crime. No, they're not soft on crime. They're pro-crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bull They are not owed that. Talking about Democrats. Adrian, uh, that isn't even a dog whistle. That's a flat-out <laughs> racial uh, accusation. I would agree. I mean, and not just the racial accusation, but the bringing home of this idea that you know someone is out to get you, someone is out to take what it is that belongs to you. Um, and the point, of course, in the general democracy is that everyone has access. Um, and so to... Stimulate this, you know, I, I do, to some degree, I want to call it a dog whistle because it's not as if they're speaking about black people specifically, plainly, to reveal. Um, but I think it's designed to stoke that feeling um, that people need to be concerned almost in a warlike environment between the races. And, you know, if we have not had enough problems with that, we certainly don't need that evoked here in this election. And I think that it's extremely detrimental to the electorate as well as to the candidates who are attempting to get their messages out. Audrey, add to that that uh, John Kennedy, the Republican senator from Louisiana, released a campaign ad over the weekend in which he slams Democrats for pushing uh, for uh, you know uh, defunding the police, which, of course, we know Democrats aren't doing. But... He goes on in the ad to suggest that Americans who hate cops should, quote, call a crackhead the next time they're in trouble. Here's another theme uh, uh, playing out that has racial connotations, Audrey. Well, you know, what can you say when you're confronted with content like that? You know, the first thing when I heard Tuberville was, wow, what a word salad. What an ugly world, that word salad. And now if there are any doubts in the world, and you heard it straight from me, that Tommy Tuberville is dumb, you know, can't be denied. So that was like not only an idiotic thing to say if it was a mistake, but if it wasn't a mistake, it was heinously evil and, um, you know, just non-factual, using for campaign rhetoric. Kennedy has a history of saying things that are 
that are, um, you know, idiotic as well. Um, again, dog whistle, I mean, I think the implications are there. And if you're the Republican Party, and I deal with a lot of young, um, very uh, principled and um, idealistic college Republicans here at the university, they would not respond positively to that at all. That would, that would be extremely disappointing. And maybe this is, you know, a generational thing, but personally, I, I hear that and I, I'm ashamed for them. It's really Patri- disgusting. I apologize for jumping in there for a second. Patricia and then Amy, um, it, this does feel, the Tuberville comment does feel as if it is the extension of the kind of behavior, the kind of rhetoric that we heard started hearing from Donald Trump during his campaign and then certainly into his presidency. And the reason I even put it on the air, I think, is because it's become almost acceptable in for, unfortunately, Republicans uh, to talk this way. My attention. Uh, Patricia, are you muted? There you go. Oh, you're fine. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, what what caught my attention in that clip was the immense cheer that came out after he said what he said. And when you when we hear people say Trump isn't responsible for Trumpism, I think what that means is that there is a, a meaningful group of Americans who agree with all of this, and this speaks to them. But it speaks to their basest instincts. It doesn't bring them to a place of better understanding or of um, seeing things from a different point of view. It just sort of goes to the very lowest point that you could go to and just digs in and sets up a tent and lives there. Um, So uh, we see it with Tuberville. We see it with Marjorie Taylor Greene at these Trump rallies. The more outrageous, the more offensive, the better for these groups. And um, I think we've uh, gotten to a point where at least these aren't broadcast live on TV the way they used to be during the Trump campaign. But I think it's important to dip in and out of these occasionally to see what is um, what's being said and how it's being received. To me, that's the more disturbing part. Amy, uh, before we have to leave, I'd love to get your take on this. It's a disturbing trend that we've gone past. I mean, they're not dog whistles anymore. I mean, they're straight up racial commentaries, right? Reparations is about slavery, which means that you're talking about black people. Uh, Trump the other day was at a rally and started asking people, have you heard of Putin used the N-word? Do you know which one? And people, of course, started yelling out the thing that that stands for. And he's like, oh, no, I mean nuclear. Now he wanted to sort of tie it to that and get people to bring up this. And it is it is disturbing in part because, um, as Adrian alluded to, right, it's about the othering and it's about fear. And othering and fear is unfortunately a very sort of base emotional response that also can work really well in politics. And we are seeing sort of an all in um, by a lot of the Republican leaders that this is the way to win. Um, It's problematic for building the party uh, as they move forward, and it's problematic for how this affects all the rest of us socially. Amy Staggerwald gets the last word on today's Political Rewind. Amy, thank you so much for being with us. Adrian Jones, you as well. Audrey Haynes, Patricia Murphy, I love the way you got our week off to a start with such a smart conversation today. We were thrilled to have Maya King join us earlier in the show. 
We're going to keep talking about Herschel Walker, but there's a lot more politics uh, as the election gets closer and closer. And uh, we'll keep track of as much of it as we possibly can in the weeks before Election Day. That's it for us today. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.